It's my pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show, where our mission is to serve you, to empower you, so you make better financial decisions in your life. One of the ways we help you make better decisions is at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com. I hope you'll visit our websites. And while you're at either one of them, you can sign up for our free newsletters. So in this episode, I want to talk about something that was an ever-present topic on our show, the second half of 20 and through 21, what has been coined the Great Resignation. There's stuff to talk about, about where we're headed now in the aftermath of the Great Resignation. Uh, believe it or not, there are people who did quit their jobs who now regret it. And you know something? Tax time is just around the corner. Please forgive me for <laughs> talking about tax time. But I was very surprised by a new listing showing the best states for taxes if you're middle income. Uh, one in particular is going to shock you. Let's talk about the great shock of COVID. It's disrupted so many things. It has been a emotional and psychological burden on so many people. It talked to so many people about their vulnerability and about the possibility of death. You know, here in the United States, we sadly have lost somewhere more than a million people to COVID. Thank goodness the rest of us who may have had it, for the most part, have gotten well and are doing okay. Some people have long COVID, uh, but overwhelmingly, Americans are okay, and we're moving to the new phase endemic. Americans don't even want to hear about COVID now, right? There are some things that happened through COVID. First, we had 100 million people approximately who lost their jobs at least for a period of time right after things got kicked off in March of 20. And a lot of people reassessed their lives in so many ways. A lot of the 100 million were called back pretty quickly, but there was already some, some uh, hurt that came with that feeling like you were securing your job, and then like that, your employer kicked you to the curb. I mean, there's a lot that happened. And particularly, a lot of people over age 50 decided that they didn't feel safe going to work, and they retired extra early, or their employers engaged in age discrimination and kicked them out. Well, I want to tell you something. A lot of people are now going back to work. Uh, for many reasons, they may have gotten bored at home. They may need the money. Uh, they may need, may need the engagement with other people. They feel lonely not being with other people. And so people are going back to work. There are people, though, when employers last year started bidding up wages, and I kept encouraging you to do this, and I feel some guilt over this reporting to you now that a lot of people who jumped to another job because it paid a lot more money now regret it because the place they went to, they hate going to work. 
So people might appreciate the more money, but if you hate where you're going, the paycheck only loads in your account, typical employer, you know, twice every other week or twice a month or whatever, once a month. And so that's a, a brief second where you're like, well, I'm glad I got that money. The rest of the time, you're working at that job you hate. And it's shocking how many people now tell pollsters, gosh, I wish I hadn't chased the higher paycheck because I actually had a better place I was working where I was happier where I was. Um, I saw a stat recently that nearly half of people have asked their old employer for their job back. Who knows if the old employers are offering their jobs back. But all these factors that magnified the what's called the rotation in employment, now some of them are starting to reverse. We still had a very high quit rate in the most recent month stats. So people are still saying, hmm, grass looks greener over there, I'm going. But I want to talk first about people that are older workers who bagged work. I've done a lot of reading about where people's heads are at and where employers need to be in terms of being accommodating to get those older workers back to deal with the labor shortages that so many employers have. And mostly there's an older worker thing, although there are younger workers this applies to as well. You're going to get them back the more flexible you are about the work hours, you know, actually when people have to go to work, when they have to leave. I'm a huge believer in the flex schedule where you might have core hours that uh, typically three or four hours a day that everybody needs to be there. But on either side of that, people can work whatever hours they want, come extra early in the morning, stay extra late in the evening, whatever, make their commute better, give them the opportunity to take kids to school, pick kids up from school, go see their soccer game, whatever. Flexibility with today's workers, are, that's going to be absolutely key. And being flexible, if your kind of work allows people to do a hybrid, you're going to find that you as a company benefit and the workers benefit if you say, well, you, we need you to come in two or three days a week, but the other two or three days of the week, you don't have to come in. That's where you're going to have that happy meeting of workers and employers. A lot of people who've been working remote only miss the camaraderie of working with people. But the biggest thing you'll miss if you work remote only is you're going to get uh, passed over for promotion. There is no way that's not going to happen because when somebody is present for a supervisor or manager, they become more front of mind than somebody who's always working remotely. It's just how it is. So know that change is required from both sides. And for people that are older who realize, let's say are in their 60s, you realize, gosh, you know, I jumped out a little early or I got pushed out a little early. I'm going to need more money. This is a time that a lot of employers are going to be more flexible with you on letting you work a two-day-a-week or three-day-a-week schedule rather than the five-day-a-week you may have worked before that you don't want to work again 
but bringing in money two or three days a week could really make a difference in your life. The opportunity is there now. And speaking of opportunity, last thing I want to say about this is entrepreneurs. I'm so glad that there's a new burst of entrepreneurial activity in the United States. Even people working for someone else, now with the technological abilities to start your own thing on the side and see if it becomes something or not become something. You don't have to jump in with both feet. You can test the waters now as an entrepreneur. This is a time that when there's something you see could be done better. Why is nobody doing this? Why is nobody doing this this way? This is a time for you to get out there and give it a shot, even if it's just a little part-time giving it a shot. Krista? Ready for some questions? I sure am. This is from Karen in Oklahoma. I went to my bank to get change for a $100 bill. They asked me for my account number, and I thought it was weird. Why do they want my account number to give me change? They said it was because they charge non-customers. I'm wondering if this is the government wanting documentation of my banking transactions. What do you think? Would a credit union do this too? So Karen, if you go in with a single $100 bill, the government's not interested in that. If you go in with a wad of cash, the bank is legally required to track the movement of that money because of money laundering activities. 10000 or more, I think, right? Right. $100 bill, uh, there are lots of possible explanations. One, the bank is just being greedy, saying, we're only going to give change to our own people. You're not one of our people. We're going to charge you. Or potentially, if later turns out the 100 is counterfeit, they know who you are to come back to you for it. Now, I've heard, we've had this before, where someone who went into a bank as a non-customer to change money, they took a picture of their driver's license. And that seems to be an invasion of privacy that a number of banks engage in. And what you heard loud and clear from this bank is they don't value you as a customer, as an individual. And making people pay to get change where the bank ends up with the same money they had before, that seems pretty trashy to me. This is from Edward in Pennsylvania. The bill for a recent dinner at a local restaurant contained a few charges that caught me by surprise. For one, the charges for each item were higher than the prices that appeared on the menu. And to add insult to injury, there was a utility fee of $1.20 for using a credit card for payment. Is this a usual and customary practice? So (laughs) charging more than on the menu is a great way to infuriate a customer who may have just had a really good meal. Um, a lot of restaurants suffering from price inflation don't want to print new menus. And that's why a lot of restaurants now have their menus with those um, QR, code. QR codes that I've told you could be dangerous. Um, or I just go to the website of the restaurant and look at the current menu. Saves them a lot of money if they don't print menus. And if they have electronic ones, they can update the price at any time. They should have some disclosure that is added to the menu that menu prices have adjusted due to inflation and that each item is $1.20 higher so that you have disclosure. I mean, giving disclosure is key because you're mad. Okay, so charging extra, oh, I went $1.20. The $1.20 was the credit card. Mm -hmm. Whatever the price was higher on the items on the menu, 
that's just not cool to not tell you. I have no problem with any merchant, any retailer, any restaurant charging more for using a credit card. Credit card expenses have become a huge hit to profitability of particularly small businesses and telling you you get the way I would do it always is I'd say you get a cash discount. You pay with cash. Then people feel like they're getting something. In your case, this restaurant lets you down twice with higher prices than were on the menu and treating it as a punishment that you used a credit card. Business owners should use the smart psychology of saying, we got a discount for you if you pay with cash. And they win and you potentially win that way. This is from Rob in Oklahoma. My daughter and her husband, age 25, are getting ready to make their first home purchase. I put my daughter on my credit card long ago, and she's had student loans that she paid off. So her credit is pretty good. However, her husband has never had a credit card and has no credit score. So when it comes to applying for the mortgage loan, they're only using my daughter's credit. What's the best way to get her husband a credit score quickly? Their financial advisor suggested adding my son-in-law to our credit card. Of course, like my daughter, he would never use it without permission. What would be your advice in this situation? Okay, so we're getting into a stickier situation. I don't know the dynamic or the relationship with your son-in-law, but if you add him as an authorized user, you don't have to actually give him the card. He would never have to know the number, but he'd have the benefit of it helping to establish a credit identity for him. Also want him to see if he can qualify for the PETAL card, P-E-T-A-L card, It is a Visa card that uses alternative methods of establishing credit worthiness instead of a traditional credit report. There are other issuers doing things like this as well. And you can look on Clark.com and see how to get uh, starter credit cards and what ways to do it. So I would add as an authorized user, and then that's not the end of it. That's only the beginning. And then he adds applying for a card that's his own in his own name. Now, the cards that I recommend are ones that don't require going through a secured card process, that it's a real credit card, low limit, but a real credit card from the beginning. Now, speaking of low and high, taxes that states assess vary so much from place to place. And I want to tell you where state taxes overall in states that charge taxes generally, where the overall tax burden on the middle class is actually the lowest. We make assumptions where the overall tax burden is the highest, lowest, or in between in the United States. And I'm particularly interested on the typical middle income earner. Well, Kiplinger recently ran the numbers to come up with what were the 10 states out of the 50 that had the lowest overall tax burden on the middle class. This includes income tax, sales taxes, use taxes, other taxes. And the 10th least tax state in the country, by their analysis, is Delaware. I forgot property taxes as well. Nine, Arizona. And eighth is going to shock you because it shocked me to my core, California. How did California make the list of the lowest overall tax burden on the middle class? 
How could that possibly be? Because California has a very low 1% tax rate on a certain amount of income. And then after that, until you get to be a huge income earner, the income tax is pretty low because of something called Prop 13 that happened two generations ago. California generally has a low tax rate on real estate. In fact, ironically enough, some of the states that charge no state income tax don't make the low tax state kind of list because things like real estate taxes and sales taxes are potentially so high. Washington State, seventh. Washington State has no state income tax, and that puts them way up on the list, even though they they have no state income tax. The other taxes don't put them in a high tax category, followed by North Dakota in sixth place, Alaska in fifth. How does Alaska keep its tax burden so incredibly low? Oil. The production of oil that is part of what gives us the crown as the number one energy producer in the world in the United States leads to, instead of citizens paying taxes most years, they get a check from the state, a breathing check. You got a pulse, you got money. In fourth place, the state of Tennessee, again, no state income tax, doesn't compensate it like some states with a bunch of other fees. Florida, number three. Florida has a great benefit. Huge numbers of tourists that pay a lot of sales taxes, uh, rental car taxes, and other taxes, hotel motel taxes that are geared towards travelers, helps Florida have one of the lowest tax burdens on residents of any place in the country. Number two, Nevada. That's kind of self-evident too. The gambling revenue and the taxes associated with gambling give Nevada the second lowest tax burden in the country, no state income tax either. And the lowest of all on middle income earners, the great state of Wyoming, number one, no income tax and an extremely low overall state sales tax rate. And how are they able to do it? Energy again. So there are reasons why uh, good governance obviously plays a role, but there are other factors that also lead to lower overall tax burdens. And the thing going back to California that came in eighth, you know what negates all the benefit of what seems to be lower than typical taxes, the state level? What it costs to live in California, what it costs to buy a home or rent an apartment in California. That's why so many people are skedaddling, uh, not to mention the traffic. Krista, <laughs> you want to share what it's oh, like? Oh, you hate driving when, in L.A. L.A., I mean, when, when we... Uh, would do events throughout the state of California. Nobody wanted to go with me, did they? No, especially before we had ways, you know, and things to to tell us where the traffic was. Thank goodness for that. Now we're seeing when we had, you know, 
nothing with us and we had to figure it out. It was a lot harder. So one time with you in Connecticut and one time with another producer in California, we both times were late to book signings because we were relying upon MapQuest. Remember MapQuest? You'd go online and print the pages out. And uh, we ended up way lost both of those times simply because we didn't have modern navigation tools. I know. Thank goodness for that now. This is from Ryan in Georgia. My son was a photo double in a Netflix series. He received a W-2, and at the time when they were filming, he was 11 years old. He's now 12. Do I have to claim him on my taxes, or does he have to do a tax return? He does a tax return, which will take no time at all. And let me tell you, Ryan, there's a huge advantage to your son doing that tax return. Okay, my wife is an actress, so um, our two younger kids both did things in print and in commercials when they were really young. And so we did their tax returns, and where did all their earnings go? Into Roth IRAs. And the money in there already has become real money for both of them. Neither of them know those Roths exist, by the way. They might now. Anyway, um, Ryan, I would set up a Roth for a 21 Roth for your son and don't know how much money you got, but you want to put that money into a Roth. It will be able to grow tax-free for your son for the rest of his life, including all the rest of work he does to be spent tax-free in retirement with the compounding over the years. Um, I don't know if he earned more than 1000 If he earned more than 1000 you have a choice of Vanguard, Schwab, and Fidelity. He earned less than 1000 you have Schwab and Fidelity to choose from as uh, low-cost, affordable places to open a Roth IRA for your son. And again, that return will take you less than five minutes. This is from Kimberly in Ohio. My husband's and my cell phone numbers have been used by another couple. We get calls for them frequently, usually bill collectors. We are concerned about identity theft or other fraud. Our credit has been frozen thanks to you. Several years ago, someone got a refund from the IRS in our name, even though we owed money. Now our accountant uses a special code with them. We check our bank and credit card statements regularly. What else do we need to do? Okay, your credit's been frozen for years. You have your pen code with the IRS. You've done everything you should. And on the thing with the bill collectors, years ago when I switched to this number, it became great content for our show because I was getting so many calls from bill collectors. The person who had the phone before owed money to everybody on earth. And my teenage son has had the benefit of learning to pay your bills on time because the person who had that number that he has before him owed everybody on earth money. He knows everything about this woman. He knows where she lives. I mean, he's, you know, he's dug online, he knows everything about her. And she left a trail of bills that is unreal. And so I tell Grant, talk to the bill collectors, learn how it works and tell them that you're not the person and it's funny that sometimes they'll scream at him and say, put your mom on the phone. <laughs> and other times they're like, oh, okay. And they leave him alone. But they've started to trail off. Now he's had the number three years. Mm-hmm. 
it's much less frequent now. But they the calls should trail off over time. That is not a signal of future identity theft happening that people who owed money to everybody had these numbers prior. This is from Mark in New Jersey. Clark, you said the best way to plan a vacation is to look for the best flight deal and then book around that. You actually talked about this yesterday. Is there a website that you can recommend which shows deals on vacation packages, including hotels and flights, that we could plan around? I feel like this option is more robust than just looking at cheap flights. I've looked at Costco Travel in the past for this, but I'm not blown away by some of the deals. Yeah, and Mark, I don't think you will be. I find that uh, packages are more about convenience and the bundling where you don't have to figure out, okay, so we're going to fly on this airline, we're going to stay at this place, and we're going to do these transfers, and we're going to get this rental car, and you're trying to put that whole puzzle together with all the puzzle pieces. Generally, packages are a convenience item not a cheaper way to do it because every item gets marked up a few times by first the seller of the package and then the supplier they use and all that. So I don't think you're going to find that packages are ever going to blow you away. They are there for a different reason, a different purpose than necessarily getting you a lower price. And I want to thank you for listening to this episode where the price is free, the information is priceless. How is that? I love it. I hope you have a great rest of your day.